0: This is
1: Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live.
2: This is the Saturday Breakfast Show with me, your host, Darren Lester. I am very, very happy to be here with you this morning. We are going to be talking about um, resolution and resilience. We are going to be looking at the extent to which we do and should make resolutions. We're going to look at the differences between uh, resolutions and goals, and we're going to be having a bit of a think about how we can use our resolutions, we can use our goals to help build up our professional resilience. Because resilience is something we quite often talk about um, with our children, uh, particularly those of us who work in primary, um, we quite often, resilience is one of those buzzwords that we use quite a lot with, with young primary children, and so we often forget, I think, to, um, to apply that to ourselves. We forget that we as professionals should also build up our own resilience. So, that is going to be our focus today, that's going to be what we are looking at, and that's going to be kind of where we jump off of. Um, but before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about how the Christmas break has gone. Um, for me, it was filled with Covid, <laughs> I, it kind of ripped through my household. Um, starting on Christmas Eve, when we had a whole bunch of, of people texting into the family group chat about how um, they had tested positive. And then I managed to hold off until last Friday. Um, I tested positive last Friday. And I've kind of been suffering with it. This time I was, I think I've been a little bit complacent, you know, because over the course when i had it for the first time which was easter 2022 i believe um i was absolutely fine to be completely honest i kind of didn't suffer with it at all i um i quarantined because at that point we were still supposed to um but i taught all of my one-to-one lessons that i had um because a big part of my job is one-to-one teaching of speaking. Um, so uh, all of my one-to-one lessons I did online over Teams, and I was absolutely fine to do that. Um, but this time it kind of wiped me out. I'm not going to lie. It, um, it has hit me really hard. And I'm still finding myself um, struggling to, uh, to catch my breath every so often. So I'm kind of just telling you that, Ray. I don't want to talk about COVID particularly, but I'm just telling you that just in case um, over the course of the show today, over the course of the next hour and a half, um, if we need to take ourselves a little bit of a break, if we need to maybe play the adverts a little bit more often than I usually would, um, that would be why, because I don't want you to have to listen to me, Kind of struggling to catch my breath.
0: Bet UK is just two weeks away. Are you ready to join 30,000 attendees, 600 plus exhibitors on seven content stages from 120 countries and see Louis Theroux, Dame Darcy Bustle, Jason Ade, Laura Carner, Baroness Luella Benjamin, Dan Fitzpatrick, Mr. PICT, and so much more? <gasps> I might need to bring my trainers. The best part? educators go free get your ticket now at uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor dash registration
1: this show is brought to you in partnership with john Cat educational publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world have you checked out their latest releases use the code jcttr 2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading.
0: Introducing Eaton X from Eaton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving, and many more. Offer the Eaton X curriculum in your school for free. Visit eatonx.com to find out more.
2: The, The bones of our show today, the point of our show today, is resolution, goal setting, and resilience that is what we are talking about particularly in a professional capacity so i will remind you as always if you would like to interact with the show today you absolutely can if you are listening live via the podbean app a very good morning to you you can text in Uh, I am very, very happy to take your texts to see kind of what you have to say today. If you are listening live elsewhere, good morning, Solo. Solo has texted in a very good morning to you. Um, If you are listening to us live elsewhere, so not via Podbean, you can tweet me. I am at Mr. D. Lester. That's M-R-D-L-E-S-T-E-R and i have twitter open in a window so you can absolutely um you can absolutely engage with us that way if you are listening on replay so if it is not currently uh six minutes past the hour for you i was gonna say 906 but then i remembered that of course we have listeners from from all over the world so It's not necessarily 906 for people who are listening live, Um, but if you are not listening live at all, you can still engage, you can still interact, you can still tweet me, because as I always say, and 2024 will be no different, this is a topic that I'm interested in. These topics are always topics that I'm interested in, because it's very hard to sustain an hour and a half, talk about something that you don't really care about, Um, and they are topics that I will always be interested in. So what I am hoping is that you will uh you will still engage with me over in Twitter, over on Twitter, and I will speak with you on the topic. It is 1237 pm in Iran, solo has said. That's very cool. i never thought about the time difference between um the UK and Iran before. So um so it's very interesting and it's interesting to note that there's that extra half hour in there. As well because in my head time differences have always been um kind of four hours so having that extra half hour in there is um is also very interesting yeah about four hours it's gonna be three hours um if it's twelve thirty seven for you three and a half that's very cool that's very cool all right so let's talk about um let's talk about resolutions to start with, because if you are anywhere on social media, you will have heard, I'm sure, diatribes about people not setting resolutions, Uh, and I'm sure there are people in your workspace who are very proud of the fact that they don't make resolutions. You may be one of those people who is very proud of the fact that you don't make a resolution. Um, I am not one of those people. I like resolutions. Um, I like resolutions and I like goals, I like both. I do think they are different things. I do think they are different things and we'll kind of talk about what that difference is. Um, But I like both, I do both, Um, and I think that both are very, very important. So let's talk about resolutions to start with, since it is the new year, it is the 6th of January. Um, I still think that this counts as new year. I still think it's, it's fine to say happy new year to people. Um, so this is where we are going to start. So the English word resolution comes from um, the old French resolution from the 14th century. Comes directly from the Latin resolutionem, um, resolution in the nominative, which was the process of breaking something down into a simpler form. Um, it's, in Latin, it's an action noun. Um, And it comes, it's derived from the past participle of the verb resolvere, to loosen. So the whole idea of a resolution, if you take it at its etymological um, root, is this idea of breaking something down, of, of creating something and making it simpler. It's a problem solving process. Um, It first actually is applied to the idea of problem solving in English in the 1540s um, when it became defined as a power of holding firmly, character of acting with a fixed purpose. So at somewhere between the 1300s, when it came into English and the 1540s, it went from this idea of loosening of reducing something into a simpler form, um, and it almost flipped itself on its head and became this idea of of acting firmly. We went from a loosening to a tightening. By the 1580s it came to mean a steadfast purpose. It came to mean something that you were absolutely doing that couldn't be broken. Um, By the mid-15th century uh, it had come to, meant to it had come to mean a frame of mind um, and it quite often had a religious, a moral or a pious application to it. So there was this idea that a resolution was something that you were going to do to make yourself a better uh, a better religious person essentially. Um, by the 1580s, It had then come to mean a formal decision um, or an expression of a meeting. Uh, And then the idea of a new year's resolution, um, this idea of bettering yourself in the new year, that actually dates from the 1780s and had become a fixed part of society um, through the 19th century. And again, they were usually pious in nature they were usually religious they were usually moral so this idea of resolution actually kind of evolves from the the late 14th century through to the 1700s um, and becomes steadfast in its modern meaning um, by the 1800s which I think is really interesting, and I think that that change is really interesting. That meandering in um, that meandering in meaning is really interesting, where we go from this idea of breaking something down into a simpler form, a loosening, through to a solving of a problem, through to a tightening, steadfast purpose through to a statement of intent. You can kind of see why that happens, you can see why um, why that meaning meandered, and you can see why we've kind of um, settled on the meaning that we have now. Um, Solo texted in to say that she believes that goals are a part of resolution. Um, And I actually agree, although I think I would switch it round, And I would say that resolution is part of goals making. Um, Although, as always happens here on the Saturday Breakfast Show, I might change my mind. I might decide that I am wrong um, at some point over the next hour. Um, So for me, a resolution is this idea of a... An actual change, I think. You identify an issue in your life and you figure out how you are going to make that change, how you're going to solve that issue. So, I do think for me, this idea of a New Year's resolution has always had its um, problem solving genesis it's always come from this idea of going there's something i'm not happy about in my life and so i'm going to change it and i think for the most part that is what most people think of when they come up with new year's resolutions even if they don't realize that's what they're doing so you know when people say oh my new year's resolution is to go to the gym let's take that very very traditional very stereotypical one my new year's resolution is to go to the gym the problem that has been identified is that they don't exercise enough, or not active enough, whatever it might be. So they've identified a problem, and the resolution is the resolution, the resolving, the solving of that problem. And I think that that's really important, because for me, As somebody who is very much about self-improvement and and kind of wants to be the best version of me that I can be, I I do actually think it's important to identify these problems that we have in our lives. I I think it is important to identify where we are going wrong. Um, You know, be it in terms of our health or our career progress or our um, moral fortitude perhaps you know whatever it might be whatever is important to you um, i do think it's good to look back on the year that has gone and this is why the new year is um, a good time to do it because you know regardless of whether you are somebody who believes in the new year being a fresh start or whether you believe that it is a, a kind of arbitrary point in time there is something about the winter months um, perhaps because we are indoors a lot more, um, perhaps because we are socialised to think this way because of, of um, the new year being when it is. But there is something about the winter months that does seem to prompt this kind of internal work, the the, the reflection, the thinking. Um, and I do think it's good to look back on the year that has gone and think, well, OK, what actually did go wrong or what didn't go as well as I would have liked it to to figure out what that problem was and then to find a resolution to find a way to solve that problem and so for me that's what that's what new year's resolutions are they are not a kind of list of new habits that I want to pick up particularly they are ways of trying to solve a problem that I have identified in the last year two years whatever it might have been that is stopping me from living my life the way that i want to live it and that's going to be very personal for everybody you know for some people that will be about health and fitness you know for some some people might have had a a big health scare let's say over the last year and perhaps it's lifestyle induced so the resolution will be to look back and to go, okay, my lifestyle has caused this health scare, has been responsible for this health scare. Therefore, I will change my lifestyle in order to um, to mitigate those issues. You might have had a health scare that is not to do with your lifestyle. You know, it might just be a way that your body has gone wrong and you are then looking at your lifestyle to try and... Um, alleviate some of your symptoms, perhaps. Maybe you are one of the the many, many people, uh, many, many adults in the past year or so, who has been diagnosed with ADHD. I'm seeing an increase in adults talking about their own ADHD diagnoses. And so maybe you are looking back on your lifestyle pre-diagnosis, and you're going, okay, these are the things that I was doing that was exacerbating my ADHD, and so my resolution is going to be to make these lifestyle changes in order, to, um, in order to alleviate those symptoms, in order to make that better. And I do think quite often this is where people go wrong with their New Year's resolutions, is that there's no change to be made. There's no actual underlying reason for them and I do think that schools play a part in this because I remember being in primary school um, and in our English lessons right first day back in January um, we were asked to write our list of new year's resolutions And, you know, as a teacher, I understand completely where my teacher was coming from. Um, You know, we were practicing list writing, we were practicing punctuation, we were practicing spelling, all of that sort of thing. My year nines and my year elevens in in my lessons next week will be writing New Year's resolutions because I want to practice the future tense in the languages that I will be teaching. So even though I know that schools are partially responsible for not um, not kind of training us in how to make New Year's resolutions in the way that I think they should be made, I'm going to be party to it um, because it's going to make for a, a useful lesson. But I think in school, which is quite often when we encounter this idea of New Year's resolutions for the first time, we're not encouraged to think critically about our lives and to identify a problem to solve we are just encouraged to come up with a list of things that we want to do and then we're not encouraged to check back in with those lists either so we're kind of brought up with this idea that we should make new year's resolutions and these new year's resolutions should kind of just be these arbitrary changes that we decide to make And then we write them down and then that's it. And they kind of disappear. And I think if that's the only exposure you have to New Year's resolutions, or if those are the only ways that you've ever kind of made them, then I understand why you might be against them because they end up being kind of purposeless. They're almost an exercise for the point of doing an exercise. So my suggestion if you are interested in new year's resolutions if if you are wanting to make a big change would be to look back at what problem you're trying to solve you know let's go back to to uh, the etymology of the word let's go back to what a resolution actually is Uh, you know let's go back to that latin uh, that latin resolutionem And think about that process of reducing something into a simpler form. Let's take that problem and break it down into its constituent parts. I've just been diagnosed with ADHD. I haven't. This is me um, exemplifying something. So, but we say, you know, I've just been diagnosed with ADHD. In terms of my actual life, this means X, Y and Z. This means that I have difficulty concentrating on a task for a long period of time. This means that I easily forget things. This means that I am easily distracted. So those are the problems that you are identifying. And then your resolutions are the steps that you take to mitigate those problems. So I'm going to start keeping my car keys in the same place all of the time because then I know where they are. I'm going to start keeping a chapstick in every coat pocket because I know that chapped lips um, are a sensory aggravation to me, but I don't always remember to take my chapstick. And so having one in every coat pocket is going to alleviate that issue. And it's just about breaking it down into those small steps so that you can go, How do I want to make my life better? And I think the scary thing about resolutions, particularly when you compare them to goals, is that you can fail a resolution, particularly if your resolution is really broad. If your resolution is, I'm going to go to the gym five times a week. Oh, year you can fail that quite easily um, that may have been your resolution and you may have failed it already it's possible to have done so because today is the sixth of January so if you've even missed one day this week and it's only Saturday then you have failed that resolution and people hate to fail we know that you know failure is horrible and so I think one of the things that does put people off of making resolutions is the fact that you can fail them, whereas you can't really fail a goal. And it's a very subtle difference. But, you know, as a linguist, I believe very much in the power of language and, and in how language can alter the way that we see things and the way that we feel about things. And what's interesting is we don't say that we've failed a goal. We say that we didn't meet it. And that is a difference. That is a difference. Practically, it's not, you know, in an actual practical everyday term, um, it's not different at all. But there is something about the fact that, that we don't meet a goal instead of failing a goal, that makes a goal easier to have than a resolution, because you can fail a resolution. My resolution is to go to the gym five times this week. I missed Wednesday, so I failed. My goal is to go to the gym five times a week. I missed yesterday, so I didn't hit my goal, but I can try again next week. A resolution is kind of all or nothing, isn't it? It's kind of all-encompassing whereas a goal by its very nature by how we are trained in goal setting is much more about those smaller steps it's a bit more wishy-washy isn't it let's be honest it it has built-in room for failure whereas a resolution doesn't at least in the way that we traditionally make resolutions so if you are somebody who is interested in making resolutions but maybe is scared to do so think again about that idea of reducing things into simpler forms. The resolution is just about taking something from your life that you want to change, breaking that down into simpler forms, and meeting those simpler forms. So it doesn't need to be a big sweeping generic, I'm going to go to the gym five times a week. It can be, I need to get more exercise. That's my resolution, to get more exercise. And I break that down into the simpler forms of, I'm going to walk to work instead of um, catching the bus. I'm going to take the stairs instead of the lift. I'm going to go to the gym once a week on my way home from school. So it's about making it manageable. Instead of making it like this big sweeping statement of, oh, I'm going to change my entire life, but actually not think about what those steps are in order to make that change. And I think that's the thing. I think that's often what we miss when we think of resolution versus goals, is we miss those small steps when it comes to a resolution. So what is the difference then? What is the difference between a resolution and a goal? Um, For me, I think it comes down to the starting point. I think a resolution is going, this is something in my life that isn't working and I want to fix it. Whereas a goal is, this is something I want to achieve. So for me, they are actually opposite ends of the spectrum. See, I told you that I would change my mind as I was talking. Because a goal has quite, um, a goal has a very positive starting place. A goal is, this is something good in my life that I want to achieve. And because we're working towards that, because it's a positive that we're trying to, to, to gain, we will naturally break that down into the smaller steps. Whereas the resolution is the other end of the spectrum. It's the, this is a negative in my life that I want to change. And I think that that can be harder because it can be quite scary to address the negative things in your life. It can be scary to make a change and it can be harder to break those things down. So for me, those are the differences. A resolution is about changing something that is already in your life and you don't like it. It's solving a problem. Whereas a goal is working towards something new. And I don't know, you might disagree you might have completely different definitions and, and, and that's absolutely fine. But I do think that making a resolution and setting a goal are two different things. Um, I think that goal setting has a purpose and goal setting is is really good and it is something that we should all do. But at the same time, I think that resolution setting also has a purpose and is also something that we can do. Because I think that you can you can strive for goals. You know, you can do all of the goal setting that you like. But if you have got these kind of fundamental things about your life that you, you wish could change, that you have the power to change, because I'm not saying that all negatives in life are within your power to change. But if you've got this... this negative that you can change, but you don't because you are not a resolution person. I think that your life won't necessarily be any better for hitting your goals, because you won't have kind of tried to resolve some of the the, the negative things that are happening anyway. I think it's all about balance. You know, the ancient Greeks used to say everything in moderation. You know, they were very big on this idea of balance. And I think it's important to strive for the good things while also trying to resolve the bad. But I don't know, that's just where I am on this whole idea um, at the moment. Again, when we do this show next year, um, I may have changed my mind completely about what I think of goals versus, um, versus resolutions. But right now, that's where I am, and and I have no issue changing my mind about things. I think it's important to be open to changing your mind about things. Um, I think if you have a steadfast opinion that you are never open to changing, then it means that you're not learning and you're not growing as a person, uh, which is a real shame. Oh, I was hoping that I will be able to um, to to very stylishly slide into the adverts. There, I'd hoped that maybe re-uploading the adverts file would have uh, would have made a difference, but it hasn't. So, what we are going to do is we are going to find the script for the adverts because they are very important um, to make sure that you still get them, and then we will move into talking about resilience because, of course, if we are talking about finding negative things in life that we are trying to solve, that we are trying to resolve, that we are coming up for resolutions for. Uh, coming up with resolutions for, I'm sorry. We also need to make sure that we are resilient with them, that we are thinking about how we don't let these negatives um, knock us down too much. Uh, Bet UK is just two weeks away. Are you ready to join 30,000 attendees, 600-plus uh, exhibitors on seven content stages from 120 countries? Uh, and see Louis Theroux, Dame Darcy Bustle, uh, Jason Elecara, uh, Baroness Floella, Benjamin Dan Fitzpatrick, Mr PQ, CD, and so much more. I might need to bring my trainers with the best educators. Go free. Get your ticket now at UK dot com forward slash visitor dash registration uh, this show is brought to you in partnership with john cat educational publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world have you checked out their latest releases use the code jcttr2024 for 20 percent off your order don't miss out visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range in- of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eaton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel designed for self-study. These web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication, and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our study skills courses open their learning abilities while the AI fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving, and many more. Offer the EtonX X curriculum in your school for free. Visit etonx.com to find out more. Lots of cool stuff um, on offer there. It is amazing what you can find, what is offered by educational publishing companies, um, and they are well worth exploring. Uh, just to make our lives easier, if nothing else. So let's have a chat about professional resilience, shall we? Um, A shout out right now to Dr. Amy Iverson and Dr. Charlotte Feynman, whose work I have drawn on and adapted um, while making this show today. Uh, Thank you to you both. We're going to start with a story. I think all good thinking points start with a story. A classicist that I am, we are going to start with one of Aesop's fables. This is The Oak and the Reed. A giant oak tree stood near a brook in which grew some slender reeds. When the wind blew, The great oak tree stood proudly upright, with its hundred arms uplifted to the sky. But the reeds bowed low in the wind, and sang a sad and mournful song. You have reason to complain, said the oak. The slightest breeze that ruffles the surface of the water makes you bow your heads, while I, the mighty oak tree, I stand upright and firm before the howling tempest. Oh, don't worry about us, replied the reeds. The winds don't hurt us. We bow before them, and so we do not break. You, with all of your pride and your strength, have so far resisted their blows, but the end is coming for you. As the reeds spoke, a great hurricane rushed out of the north. The oak tree stood proudly, and he fought against the storm while the yielding reeds bowed low. The wind redoubled in fury. And all at once the great oak tree fell, torn up by his roots, and he lay down dead among the pitying reeds. It is therefore better to yield when it is folly to resist than it is to resist stubbornly and be destroyed. Good old Aesop. I like Aesop. If you don't know of Aesop, he was the Brothers Grimm of ancient Greece essentially. He went around collecting fables and stories that were being told, always with a moral there at the end. And what's quite interesting about that one, and it's a story that has been retold many, many times, but it's this idea that, that being too strong, being too rigid, being too steadfast is actually a negative in life. It can seem like a positive. But actually, if you are not that little bit flexible, if you are not willing to bend, then you will eventually be uprooted. And there are there are a few different ways that we can that we can take this story, that we can interpret this story. That's the point of a fable after all, is that you take it and you apply it to whatever in life it is that you're talking about. But here, what I find quite interesting, when we're talking about professional resilience, is that it's not about steadfast strength. Resilience is not about being able to take every single blow that comes your way. And quite often, that's how we define resilience. That's what we think of um, resilience as being, is this idea that you can just withstand anything. But what Aesop is trying to say, I think, in terms of resilience, is that it's just about surviving. And sometimes you have to let yourself be battered. And sometimes you have to let yourself be thrown around in the storm. But as long as you stay rooted, as long as you stay firm where you are, and you are flexible enough to take the battering, then you'll be okay. Resilience is really important. We know that. We tell it to our children all the time. I think, you know, when you look on different school websites... And, and you see what their core values, their, their key ideas are. Resilience is, is often one of them. But what does it mean to be resilient in the workplace? Why do we need to be resilient in the workplace? Why isn't resilience just something for children? We are in a very fast-paced working world right now. Faster paced, I think, than it has ever been, and it will continue to be that way. I had this conversation with somebody recently. Um, We're still kind of figuring out what the Industrial Revolution meant. And the Industrial Revolution came so quickly. That's why it was a revolution instead of an evolution, because of how fast it happened that nobody ever really thought about the long-term consequences of it. It was just all of a sudden there was this machinery and all of a sudden people could work longer hours because it wasn't as taxing on their body. And so all of a sudden they were. And there was no kind of long-term plan laid out. And so the working world has just got faster and faster and faster and more intense and more intense. And we've been born into that world. All of us now have come along since the industrial revolution. We don't know what life was like before. And we just kind of go with it. And because of this fast pace, we have to recover quickly from our mistakes. Because if we don't, and if we allow our mistakes to, to sit inside us, if we dwell too long on our mistakes, we will get left behind. There really isn't that time anymore for a lot of internal problem solving. There really isn't time for resolutions anymore. You have to quickly get over your mistakes, you have to quickly rectify it, and then you get back to work. we need to be able to focus then on our own thoughts and feelings because resilience comes within resilience is something that is of us it's about controlling our thoughts controlling our feelings controlling our reactions to things and this is done through the observation of our own actions and responses and finding practical ideas on how we can make positive changes see it all links It all links. This idea of resolution being identifying a negative, breaking it down into those small steps to make the practical changes. A goal being about finding something positive to work towards. And then resilience being about recognising that something has gone wrong, not falling to pieces over it, but finding those steps to rectify it and to make sure it doesn't happen again. So, resolution, goal setting, and resilience are all kind of linked. Resilience is quite interesting because it has a lot of different definitions, depending on where you go. So, the British Red Cross say that it is the different abilities of anticipating, reducing the impact of, coping with, and recovering from the effects of adversity. Resilience is therefore not just the immediate ability to respond to negative events, but rather a process of positive adaptation before, during and after adversity. And I quite like that. I quite like this idea of resilience being a process. Because again, if we go back to to Aesop's story, we had the oak tree who was just very steadfast in his life he stood he was strong he was powerful but he was uprooted whereas the reeds they went through this process of moving around with the wind and they were the ones who ultimately survived and that's kind of what resilience is isn't it is it's it's the survival it's your ability to survive in your workplace so i quite like that from the British Red Cross. And I like framing it as this process so that you don't just turn around and say, oh, yeah, I'm a resilient person. That's done now. I'm fine. But you go, actually, no, my resilience is how well I am identifying that a problem is coming, doing what I can to mitigate that problem, but then going through the problem itself and then responding to it. Um, Bridget Daniel in the Scottish Journal of Residential Care in 2003 said resilience is the ability to know where how and when to use your energies to improve things for yourself and how to recruit help in that endeavor so again I quite I like that as well it's that ability to Identify where the problem is and identify what you're going to do to solve it. So resilience is not, as it can often be simplified, not being affected by a problem. It's not that you don't get upset because of your problem. It's not that you aren't impacted by your problem. It's that you don't let the problem um, debilitate you it's that you don't get so caught up in the problem that you then forget to do everything else you are supposed to be doing. Neenan in 2009 said that resilience is a set of flexible, cognitive, behavioral, and emotional responses to acute or chronic adversity, which can be unusual or commonplace. So we build up resilience to one-off events, a bad observation, um, a particularly awful lesson where the children just will not cooperate, and things that happen all the time, a a toxic coworker, a class that you just can't quite seem to manage. Both sets of events, repetitive and one-off, need that resilience. Neenon says that these responses can be learnt. So it's not a case of you're either a resilient person or you're not. You can learn to be resilient. But what I like best about Neenon's definition is that it's about coming back from adversity, not bouncing back.
0: Bet UK is just two weeks away. Are you ready to join 30,000 attendees, 600-plus exhibitors on seven content stages from 120 countries and see Louis Theroux, Dame Darcy Bustle, Jason Arday, Laura Karner, Baroness Florella Benjamin, Dan Fitzpatrick, Mr PICT, and so much more. I might need to bring my trainers. The best part educators go free get your ticket now at uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor registration
1: this show is brought to you in partnership with john Cat educational publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world have you checked out their latest releases use the code jcttr 2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading.
0: Introducing Eaton X from Eaton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving and many more. Offer the EtonX curriculum in your school for free. Visit EtonX.com to find out more.
2: And I've seen schools define resilience as bounce back ability, which I find very hard to say, um, and even harder to process. Um, but it's not about bouncing back. Being resilient isn't about letting every single problem be like water off a duck's back to you. It's not about going, oh, okay, well, this negative thing happened, what's next? Because that's not being resilient, that's not caring, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just not the same, it's not what we're talking about. So resilience isn't about bouncing back, it's about not letting the adversity Um impact you in a way that it doesn't deserve to it's about not being oh i'm going to say this even though it's going to sound really bad it's about not being overly dramatic regarding the adversity it's about letting it have the place it deserves sitting with it doing what you need to do to get over it and then getting over it It's almost about letting yourself be affected. The reeds in Aesop's story let themselves be affected by the wind. The tree didn't. And it was the tree that fell. Whereas the reeds who let themselves be affected, they were the ones who remained standing because they had developed their coping strategies. So I really like that. I really like this idea of coming back and not bouncing back. The other reason that I like it is that quite often people will think that they are not resilient because they don't bounce back quickly, because they need to take that time, because they need to sit with the trauma. But actually those people are resilient because they do come back from the adversity. They just haven't bounced back. And I think quite often bouncing back can be what we encourage in the workplace because like I said, you know, we are in a fast paced working environment, all of us, regardless of, of, of what job we do, our working environments are fast paced. And so, you know, the sooner we can get over something and move on to the next thing, the better for our workplace. But actually, and you know, as long term friends of the show will know, I am a huge advocate for for mental health in the workplace, for for looking after yourself. How does bouncing back benefit you? If it does, and if you are the type of person who needs to not sit with something bad that's happened, if you are the type of person who needs to brush it off very quickly and just, you know, keep calm and carry on, then that's what you need to do. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. But at the same time, if you are somebody who does need to sit with it, and who does need to to let it be part of you for a while, then do, because that is also resilience, so long as you don't let it consume you. And I think that's the key to resilience, isn't it? Is keeping everything in perspective, keeping everything in proportion. As teachers, we need to be resilient. Because there are huge changes in education that happen all of the time. There are huge changes in the workplace that happen all of the time. We have excessive workload. And again, none of this actually is unique to teachers. Okay, Doctors have all of these same issues. Um, supermarket workers have all of these same issues. Refuse collectors have all of these same issues. It's it's part of being in the workplace in 2024. So this is why we all need to make sure that our professional resilience is is up to scratch. We all have excessive workload. We deal with constant demands. And for those of us who are in caring professions, teachers, doctors, nurses. Um, carers we quite often have to deal with suffering in one kind or another and depending on where in the caring professions you are that's going to be slightly different but there will always be somebody else's suffering with which we have to deal there is uncertainty about future you know we know about educational costs we know about cuts to budgets we know about the arts being cut, we know about languages being cut from curricula. Um, I don't think any job anymore is considered to be a job for life. You know we've all heard the stories of how in the the 50s, the 60s, the 70s you could leave school, join a, a workplace and be there until you retired but that's not a given for any of us anymore and we need to be prepared for that. Um, the There's the dealing with your own mistakes or being scared to make a mistake and I think for teachers that's a big one, being scared to make a mistake. I know particularly when I was an Uh, a, a newly qualified teacher, so in my early days, and I've told this story before, how I used to hate if I didn't know something. If a child asked me a question that I couldn't answer, it was the worst thing in the world to me, because I felt like, as part of my teacher identity at that time, that I had to be the person with the answers, that it was part of being a teacher to have all of my knowledge in my head, And it's taken me a long time to get over that, and and as I've said, I now actually like it when a child asks me a question that I don't know the answer to. Because I think it's important for children to see that not everybody knows everything, even about their specialist subject. And I think it's important for me to model where I, as the specialist, go to find out my information so that the children who are interested in languages, in classics, in in my specialist subjects, they know where to go to get the information when I'm not around anymore to give it to them. But I wonder how I would feel if I were being observed and a child asked me a question that I didn't know the answer to. I know logically that it wouldn't matter. Because I know that what actually is important is how you deal with that question. And I know that my modelling of going to the dictionary, going to the grammar book, whatever it might be, and finding out is actually the best thing to do in that situation. And I know that. And I know that my heads of department know that. I know that the people who are going to observe me will know that. But I also know that subject knowledge is a, or was when I was training, a, um, a, a strand, a, a criterion that we had to meet. Which is fair enough, because you can't teach something that you don't know about. I can't teach art beyond, you know, primary level, because I don't know about it. Um, I can't do it. I didn't even like teaching art at primary level because I, I'm i not an artist. Um, and so because you have it ingrained into you that you need to know these things, for me, that became a big sticking point of my practice, that I had to know this stuff. So I had this fear of making a mistake, of telling a child something incorrectly or of not knowing something and and you need that resilience to overcome those fears i needed resilience to overcome those fears because there was always going to be a point where a child came up with a word that i didn't know because i can't know all of the words the way that i did that was i made it into a game um with my year three class and it might seem a bit strange to do it with a year 3 class because you know they the the language that you teach them is all very basic you know so there is nothing that you should struggle with when you're teaching with your year 3 class but they were also the most creative in coming up with words that they thought I wouldn't know so every so often we would we would play a game and I would keep a running scoreboard where they would all have a dictionary and they would pick words at random that they thought I didn't know in French. That was language that I was teaching them. Um, and then they would throw the word out at me. And I would tell them, if I knew the word, I would tell them what it was. And they would look up in the dictionary to check. And if I then didn't know what the word was, they would look up in the dictionary to find it. And And that kind of for me and for them, I think, broke down that barrier, broke down that scariness of not knowing something. And what I noticed, um, particularly as you know, as they were throwing out more obscure vocabulary that I had no need to know, um, is that they were then less afraid of telling me that they didn't know something. Even if it was something that I taught, they were less afraid of telling me that they didn't know because they had seen me not knowing. So I ended up, and I still do quite like when I don't know a word, when I don't know a phrase. Um, I love it in my sixth form lessons when the year 13s need to know something very, very niche um, that I wouldn't have thought to look up before. And so we do. And, and I now keep a, a vocab book, uh, like we encourage them to, where I write down the new vocabulary that I learned because they've asked me a question. And because it's not vocabulary that I have ever needed, I have never thought to look it up, I never thought to learn it. And I think not being afraid of not knowing and not being afraid of making those mistakes actually has made me a better teacher because I have been able to um, to model to these children what it is to learn and what it is to be a lifelong learner and what it is to go, actually, do you know what? I don't know. It's my job to know, but I don't know, so let's find out. And, and these days, you know, with the internet at our fingertips, it's much, much easier to find out. That was a bit of a, a detour wasn't it i didn't mean to uh, to tell you that whole entire story but we went there um another reason that that in the workplace we might need to develop our resilience is due to a lack of professional support now we all know that the quality of professional support varies greatly from workplace to workplace and if you find yourself in a workplace where you don't feel that you are well supported, then you might need to work on your own resilience as a way to mitigate that issue, because there might be nothing that you can do about that. You might not be able to change the culture of the workplace that you're in. You can then think about whether you can change where you work and and all of that sort of thing. But while you are in that situation, you will need to develop your resilience to, to be able to deal with that. I'm going to be honest that felt a little bit uncomfortable to say because it almost feels like victim blaming it almost feels like i'm saying well you know there is an issue in this workplace because they're not being supportive but it's your problem so you are the one who has to deal with it but unfortunately that kind of is what happens in those situations because again you know we can talk about leaving the workplace we can talk about leaving the profession but that doesn't help in the short term you've still got to work out a notice period you've still got to then find another job it might not be practical to uproot yourself and, and move to a whole different school and while i'm not saying that it's right for um, workplaces not to interrogate themselves and not to come up with resolutions to solve their internal problems. If you are the person not being supported and you're not able on your own, or even with others to change the culture of the workplace, it might be that you need to work on your resilience in order to overcome that problem so that you go, okay, I'm not getting the professional support that I need here, therefore, part of my resilience is going to be finding it elsewhere, finding a mentor from somewhere else, another school, another um, department, another industry, and getting support from them. We need resilience to deal with externally imposed changes. You know, you get a, 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 a new hod comes in who is an external appointment, you've got no idea who she is. You will need your resilience to deal with that because she might come in with her own ideas about what makes a department good and might want to try and impose them on you. There will be a new exam specification. There is always a new exam specification that you need to deal with. Exam boards are starting to move to online testing. And all I'm seeing so far about that is negativity. I've, I've not seen anything positive said about it, which is a shame because I'm very much in favour of it. Um, and you know, kind of these things are scary, and I think that's where a lot of the negativity comes from: is is the fear of the change. Because we might have to change our practice, we might have to change what we've been doing for fifty years, and that's okay. We just need to be resilient enough to recognize that it's okay. Boredom quite often requires resilience. If you have been teaching the exact same thing in the exact same way for 50 years, you might be bored by now. And so you need resilience in order to either just get through that boredom or to change what you're doing. And a reluctance to seek help. You might just be somebody that doesn't like to ask for help. Again, I know lots of people who pride themselves on that, but they don't like to ask for help when they need it. Um, it's not something that I understand personally. I am very much an advocate of asking for help because I think that different teachers have different strengths not one of us can be good at everything across the board not everybody has perfect subject knowledge and perfect behavior management and perfect data collection and perfect marking and perfect this and perfect that if you do then please um tell my school that you do and tell them that you need to replace me uh because that's the type of teacher my students deserve um But I think, I don't think anybody can be perfect at all of those things, and I think that we need to ask for help when we need it. However, if you are not somebody who likes to ask for help, if you are somebody who struggles to ask for help, then you need to build up your resilience in order to make sure that you are not being knocked down by the fact that you're not getting the help that you might need. I don't know if you've ever seen something called the Yerkes-Dodson curve. I will tweet out a, a diagram at the end of the show. But the Yerkes-Dodson law that this curve demonstrates is this relationship between pressure and performance. And their law, so this... this. Um, was devised in 1908 by psychologists Robert Yerkes and John Dodson. Uh, And it dictates that performance increases with physiological or mental stimulation, but only up to a certain point. When your level of stimulation becomes too high, your performance then decreases. And so this is often, I'm drawing in the air as if you can see me. Um, but this is often depicted as a bell curve, which increases and then decreases with higher levels of, um, of stress. Um, it's not something that has been well cited. It's not something that has been well followed up, but it is considered to be this psychological law. So you have this mental stress and the mental stress or physiological stress, depending on on what your job is, it helps you to reach peak performance. But then you do peak. And eventually that same amount of stress causes you to go over the top, as it were, and then leads to burnout. And it's by developing resilience that we can stop ourselves from going over the top. So this is why professional resilience is important. Because yes, you might be somebody who responds well to pressure. Yes, you might be somebody who thrives in a, a pressure cooker environment. But I think all that really means is that you have a higher threshold for this stress, for this stimulation than an average person. And I think eventually even those people will go over the top and that does then still lead to burnout. So I think it is important to develop resilience, to actively develop resilience, to make this a, a conscious thing that you do in order to prevent your burnout. Now, resilience is an interesting thing because In the research that I've read over the past week, preparing for this show, I have found that it's likely that some people are more biologically predisposed to be resilient than others. Um, So there is this idea that some people are just more resilient. And it's just part of the chemical makeup of their brain. Luckily though, resilience is not a binary quality. Resilience is not, you're either resilient or you're not. It's also not completely physiological. So there are things that you can do to build it up. So there are physiological factors, yes, that we can't control. But there are also psychological and environmental factors that can lead to resilience. And your thoughts, your beliefs, your attitudes, your behaviours, they can be changed, they can be learned, they can be adopted, they can be developed. Because let's be honest, if resilience were entirely physiological, we wouldn't have it as one of our core values in school. In the same way that we don't have brown eyes as a core value. So even if you are not physiologically predisposed to being resilient, even if you do consider yourself not a particularly resilient person, even if you do buckle under criticism quite easily, you can learn your resilience. And that could be a resolution that you make because that's the identification of a problem I'm not particularly resilient. And we can then break it down into smaller steps in order to resolve that problem. Factors that contribute to resilience. So what you need in order to be resilient are a positive self-regard. We've talked about self-regard on the show before. We talked about it in the show that I did months ago about teacher identity, building teacher identity. So self-regard is, as it suggests, how you see yourself. How do you see yourself as a person? How do you see yourself as a teacher? How do you see yourself as a wife? How do you see yourself as a learner? Whatever it might be, okay? Your self-regard is how you see yourself. And so having a positive self-regard, identifying the good things about you will help your resilience because then when something bad happens, and, and it will. Bad things always do happen. We can't stop that. But when something bad happens, you're not going to crumble under this mentality of, oh, I can't do anything. Everything that I do is wrong. Blah, blah, blah. Because you will have a positive self-regard. I think positive self-regard is quite difficult. Because, of course, nobody particularly wants to be conceited. Nobody wants to be seen as narcissistic and so i think a lot of people will deliberately not develop their self-regard because they don't want to be seen as these things but having a strong opinion of yourself having a strong picture of who you are a positive picture of who you are helps with your resilience because it gives you something positive to cling on to it helps you to go yes this went wrong but these three things went well. The next thing that contributes to resilience is having an internal locus of control. So it's about controlling things that you are able to control. People like to be in control. Now, in a professional capacity, you will never have control over everything. And what I think is quite interesting, when I think about conversations that I've had with colleagues, when I think about where I think a lesson that has gone wrong, it's been because of things that are out of my control. How many times do we feel knocked down because pupils have not done their homework? Because test results were a bit lower than than we were expecting? Because test results didn't match what was predicted based on CAT scores? because GCSE results were lower than we had been predicting the whole year or the whole two years. But none of that is in our control. We don't control whether our pupils do their homework. We don't control how well they do in their exam. We don't sit and write the exam for them. And so as teachers, there is actually a lot of our job that is outside of our control. I would say there is very little in our job that is in our control. You know, if I think about, I I go back to school on Monday. I've got an inset day on Monday. Uh, And then I start teaching on Tuesday. So when I think about my very first lesson on Tuesday, the only thing that I'm going to control within that lesson is how I present it, what my materials look like. I'm not going to control what mood my pupils are in. I'm not going to control how well they learn the material. I will only control how well I teach it. I'm not going to control what they internalise. I'm not even going to control how much of the worksheet they get done. Because I can keep them on task. I can keep telling them to stop chatting. But ultimately, it's down to them to do the work. And so I think because teachers don't have very much control, that can lead to a lack of resilience in our profession. And honestly, there's very little we can do about that. (laughs) That's one of the things that we just have to accept. But I think that if we accept that we have very little control and if the people above us in the food chain understand how little control we actually have, that can help very much towards our self-regard and our resilience i think if we start putting the onus back on the children to do the learning then that can help a lot with the resilience of teachers in the classroom Viktor Frankl said that a big contributing factor to resilience were the existential concepts of freedom and responsibility How much freedom do we actually have in the classroom? I'm very lucky in that I have two very supportive heads of department who are letting me teach using the language pedagogy that I think is best. Um, I've spent a lot of time researching this pedagogy, I have done uh, training on it, I have written books using it, and I think it's best, and it was a complete overhaul from what we were doing a few years ago. But I've had the freedom to do that. I've had the the support of my hods to do it, um, and I've been questioned, and I've been I've been asked why, and I've you know they've done their due diligence in making sure that it is a robust theory of education. I've not just been allowed to do what I want because I want to do it. And I think that that being allowed to do that, having that freedom to teach in the way that I currently think is best, has helped with my resilience. Because when a lesson has gone wrong, I've been more likely to interrogate both my own practice, And the methodology of the the pedagogy and the external factors of the classroom in order to pinpoint where something went wrong. Whereas I think if I were still um, still being made to do the traditional stand up, do a PowerPoint, now do a worksheet, and now off you go. Were a lesson to go wrong, I would be less inclined to interrogate it. Because I would have just said, oh, well, you know, the the methodology is wrong. And, And that's not my fault. So I think having more freedom, ironically, gives me more ownership over what goes wrong in my classroom. And so I am more resilient because I am more likely to try and fix it because I feel like I have a stake in it. I feel like I have a reason for it to go well. The, the last factor that contributes with resilience is the ability to cope with pressure. Um, and that's a really difficult one, isn't it? Because that's all to do with your own thinking, your own behavior, your own lifestyle. And, and I think it can be really hard to to advise on how to to change that. So there is something that I've seen called the ABC model, because we do love an acronym, don't we, in education. A is for activating event or situation. So that's the thing that goes wrong that you need to be resilient over. B is for your belief about the event. And I think that word belief is very important and C is for consequence and the consequences are not oh I'm gonna get sacked they are what actually is happening to you in that moment so what are your what is your emotional response to the event are you angry are you anxious What are your behavioural responses to the event? Are you feeling aggressive over it? Are you avoiding talking about it? And then what are your physical responses to the event? Are you shaking? Are you having heart palpitations? And I think if you follow that ABC model and you identify the activating event, you identify what you believe happened and you identify the consequences, you are then able to alter your behaviours around it. Because you can pick out your belief about the event and you can go, oh actually, that might be what I think happened, that might be how I'm interpreting this event, but um objectively, that's not what happened. This is just what happened through my lens. And so, you know, I might think that I'm going to be fired because I had to look a word up in the dictionary. I couldn't answer the pupil's question. But objectively, my inability to answer that question is not the end of the world because I still found out the answer. Or because I told the people that I would go away and find out for them ready for the next lesson and I've already Googled it and I've written it in my planner to tell them when I see them on Thursday. So I think I quite like the ABC because it gives you a nice framework in which to work around the, the negative event that has happened. So what was the activating event? What do you believe about the event? And acknowledge that that's what you believe, even if it's irrational, acknowledge that you believe it. Because trying to ignore your belief, trying to ignore the irrationality is just gonna make you dwell on it. It's gonna feed that in your head. And then work out what the actual consequences are. Don't project consequences. Don't try and predict what your manager is going to do. Figure out what is actually going on inside you, because that's what you can control. So that goes back to your locus of control. That's what you can solve. And so that will help you to come back from, not bounce back from, but come back from the situation. Epictetus said... Man is disturbed not by things, but by the views he takes of them. And that's something that I've been thinking about quite a lot um, over the last couple of years. So, you know, I make no secret of the fact that I am one of the millions of people who suffers depression and anxiety. And I'm aware that that quite often colours my view of things and and i think epictetus was right because it's not often the event that gets under our skin it's how we perceive it our perception is our reality if we you know if we get a bit meta for a moment there is an argument that there is no actual objective reality, and that everything is created through our own perception, in the same way that knowledge is created through um, through perception, through through experience, through working with other people, and so there is an argument that an event is only as bad as you consider it to be and sometimes that can be really frustrating (laughs) because sometimes you can see somebody else's lesson that has gone wrong and you know that you would react really negatively to that and it would send you into a spiral and that the other person just goes oh yeah that that went wrong but never mind um, and and I, I personally find that quite frustrating because it's like, well, why do you just brush it off when I know that my behavior would spiral as a result of it? And the fact is that person just has better resilience, different resilience to me. And, and I think, you know, it's important not to compare your resilience to somebody else. Um... It's important to know that we aren't all affected in the same way by the same thing because we all interpret the same thing differently. We all have different responses. If a pupil doesn't hand their homework in on the due date, I'm going to be very honest, to me that's not the end of the world. Because one of two things will happen. They will either tell me That they had a legitimate reason that they couldn't get it handed in or that they just didn't do it 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 has to be one of those two things there is either an actual reason or they didn't do it i can't control either of those things i can't go back in time and prevent whatever reason it was for them not being able to do it all i can control is my response to the fact that they haven't handed it in and so you give them the extension and then if they don't hand it in the next time you give them the detention and and blah, blah blah but I know for for other colleagues of mine not handing homework in on time is a big deal because for them the the whole point of the homework deadline is to get the children used to deadlines to get them used to the fact that you know there will be times they have to hand things in and they need to learn that. And, and, you know, that's absolutely fine, but we would respond completely differently if we had the same child not handing in the same piece of homework. My response of, oh, okay, please can you get it to me tomorrow is gonna to be different to my colleague's response of, oh, okay, so I'm putting you into detention because you really should have done that. And so I think by accepting that we all respond to things differently. And by accepting the fact that it is in fact our perception of an event that can trigger that downward spiral that we, that we need to come back from, not the event itself, that can be a, a big way of building your resilience because you can then start to try and look at things objectively. And you can go, actually, is this a as big a deal as it is in my head? And that doesn't mean that, um, that it's not a big deal just because you're building it up into something. You know, if it's a big deal for you, if it's a big deal in your reality, then it is a big deal. But if you can say, you know, from somebody else's point of view, this is not a big deal, then that can help start the process of coming back from it. Michael de Montaigne said, my life has been full of terrible misfortunes, most of which have never happened. And I love that too. I love this idea that there have been all these terrible things that happened to him that make up his life, that were all in his head. Because when we talk about resilience, that's what we're talking about. You know, we're not talking about Grief. We're not talking about dealing with a divorce. You know, we're, we're not really talking about any of these big life things that everybody would agree are big life things. We are talking about dealing with the day to day minutiae of being in the workplace. To finish off, I'm um, going to come up with, or I'm going to give you. Some of the unhelpful thinking patterns that we can fall into as, as professionals. Um, because I think if you can identify unhelpful thinking patterns, then you can break those cycles, particularly if you are somebody a bit like me who is prone to dwelling on these same thinking patterns over and over again. So, all or nothing thinking. I'm either perfect or it's a waste of time. Okay, that's unhelpful. Overgeneralization. This thing went wrong once, therefore it's going to go wrong every time I do it. That's unhelpful. Disqualifying the positive or focusing on the negative. That's something I do a lot. This idea that um, you know, oh, because something went wrong in my lesson, all of this stuff that went right doesn't count. But it does. Now there is a psychological reason behind that. I remember learning this during my my. B-ed. Uh, and we were always told that it would take three acts of praise to um, negate one act of correction. So for every one time you told a child off, you had to give them three merits, stickers, whatever it might be, in order just to reset that child back to neutral. So psychologically, we are predisposed to focusing on the negative. But that is unhelpful. Because something bad happening doesn't disqualify the good that happened. We're taught this. We are taught that you should never take a a sticker away from a child if they've earned it, just because later on in that lesson they do something bad. And if we're don't do that to the children. Why do we do it to ourselves? And I think that's the big takeaway from, from our talk today is this idea that you know we encourage our children to develop resilience. We give our children all of these techniques, but we need to do them too, because we are also people. Um, magnification of the problem is unhelpful But so is minimization of the problem. Pretending that it's not affecting you as badly as it is, is an issue. It's unhelpful. You need to acknowledge how upset you are by something in order to start moving past it. Otherwise, it will just kind of stay there. Thoughts, feelings, fusion is unhelpful. So melding together How you are thinking about something with how you are feeling about something. Because your thoughts and your feelings are not the same. And it's good to keep them separate because that will help you to bounce back. Should, must, ought. I should have done this. The children should have behaved in this this way. I ought to have. Because again, you can't go back in time and change it. All you can do is deal with the consequences. Catastrophizing. This is another big one for me. Uh, That making any mistake is the end of the world. Because it's not. There are legitimate things that are the end of the world. And that should be the end of the world. You know, if you hit a child, absolutely. But... Forgetting to take their homework in is not the end of the world. Personalization. Getting your sense of self, your sense of identity, wrapped up in your job, which is then wrapped up in the exact way that you perform every single action of your job. That's unhelpful. Because again, you can't be the best at everything and so if your whole sense of self-worth is wrapped up in i'm a great teacher and in your head being a great teacher is about being the best disciplinarian in your school and having the best subject knowledge in your department and being able to teach the most subjects in your school and 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 you're going to lower your resilience because that's impossible you cannot have those things And finally, mind reading. This is something else that I'm guilty of. Assuming that somebody is going to react in a certain way and then trying to act on that reaction before it's happened. Because you can't predict somebody else's behavior. You can't control somebody else's behavior. And again, we know that a, a good way to build up your resilience is to focus on your locus of control. What can you control and accept that and accept what you can't and don't try to, because that will just lead to frustration. Well, that's it. That is our show for today. We have talked a lot about, um, about resilience, We have talked a lot about what you can do to build up your resilience and some of the unhelpful things that we do that can lower it. I think what I'm gonna do is check back in on this topic in a few weeks time, because I know that resilience is something that I need to build up. My professional resilience is absolutely something that I need to build up. So I'm, I'm I'm gonna sit with the things that we've talked about today. I'm gonna reflect on them. And then perhaps in quarter two, at some point. So in um, April, May or June, we'll come back to this and I'll kind of let you know how I've been doing with it because I think it is good to check in. Uh, Tim texted in, good morning. I am so glad to uh, to have you back. He said, it's good having you and your inspirational show back, Darren. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. A very happy New Year to you too. Um, I am so, so glad that you joined us today. I am so glad that everybody who listened in did so. Uh, I hope that you've managed to take something away from it as as, as much as I have, reflecting on reflection. Um, now because our um, our sound files do not seem to be working today, I will not um, give you music to go out to. So all I will say is that there is no show next week because I am teaching. Um, So I will be back with you in two weeks' time, and I am very much looking forward to it. So have a good fortnight. I will speak to you soon. Goodbye.
1: You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.